As long as the United States has traded with other nations, customs brokers have been at the center of it. Now Customs and Border Protection inaugurates new continuing education for its brokers as trade volumes and complexity grow. Details now from the Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner for CBP's Office of Trade, John Leonard. Mr. Leonard, good to have you with us. Great, Tom. Thank you for having me. And let's begin with kind of something basic. Everyone knows the term custom broker. What do custom brokers actually do? Customs brokers are folks that have been around really for almost centuries. Uh, Since the beginning of our republic in 1789, the Customs Service was really one of the first agencies ever set up to help fund our young nation, kind of take down the Revolutionary War debt by collecting duties, et cetera, and promoting international trade. And customs brokers, basically folks that act on behalf of importers and help importers clear goods through customs is their function. I almost uh, make it akin to almost like a tax preparer, if you will. But again, the the work they do is of a different nature and, and a little bit more complex in certain respects. But they're in business essentially to expedite freight into the United States on behalf of importers. And how many brokers does CBP actually have? That's an interesting point. We don't employ them. They are private sector individuals. We license them and we regulate them and we actually create the exam that they have to take to become a broker, but we don't employ them. They're in the private sector and it's just shy of 15,000 licensed brokers in the country, many of them working for very recognizable names such as FedEx, UPS, DHL, uh, and larger freight forwarders and, and other brokers. Interesting. Okay. Well, I've learned something new here today myself, so good to have you on. And what types of people? I mean, what is the educational background? Are they accountants in general, or are they lawyers, or what are they? Or just people that really like this stuff? Really all of the above. There are some baseline requirements in the law, and one of them is to be a citizen, 21 years or older. They have to pass the customs broker license exam, which actually is one of the most challenging license exams in the professional space. We have a pass rate that generally is well below 50 percent, and that's on purpose. We want it to be a very challenging exam that only people that are serious about becoming brokers are able to pass it. There's a couple of other formalities, but they come from all kinds of backgrounds, some of them from a legal or, or an international trade background. Some of them are even our own folks that used to work for CBP. But basically, they have a passion for international trade. Got it. And are some of them self-employed? You mentioned a lot of the big companies well-known, but can you be a self-employed broker and just freelance for small fry importers? Absolutely. A lot of this industry is what I call mom and pop family type of businesses where a daughter or a son will take over for their mother or their dad who owned the business. Many of them work in very niche parts of the industry where they'll specialize in a certain type of commodity. They can be a mom and pop, one family operation, or they can be a massive company like FedEx or UPS. But the one thing I wanted to mention, Tom, that I think would resonate with your listeners is pretty much everything that we work with, we deal with every day, very likely was expedited or cleared into this country by a custom house broker. The car you're driving in right now, if it was made overseas, which many of them are, the products that you use, the clothes you wear. I mean, let's face it, we don't manufacture nearly as much stuff as we did 50 or 100 years ago. So much of the stuff we use every day made overseas. And so everything you deal with every day likely was expedited or cleared by a custom house broker into one of our seaports, airports, trucks from Canada, Mexico, very dynamic environment. 
We're speaking with John Leonard. He's Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Trade at Customs and Border Protection. And like tax law or accounting law, is this an area of law that changes a lot? It is. International trade is an incredibly complex, dynamic environment where rules are changing, laws are changing, regulations. uh, It almost seems like a, a weekly basis. And so to keep these brokers, these folks that we regulate and we license up to speed, We decided in conjunction with the brokerage community and the private sector to enact this regulation whereby they must get continuing education requirements, much like many other professional licensing, you know, your medical profession, your real estate, your accounting, they all have to get some notion of continuing education credits. And so we finally, in my opinion, overdue, brought this into the world of customs brokers. Interesting. Has there been any kind of continuing education before that? Are you updating something or just inaugurating something brand new? No, actually, education for brokers has existed for many, many years. Classes that they themselves put on on the private side and training that CBP and other partner government agencies that have equities at the border have put on. But this is now the first time that we've actually made it a requirement in regulation, whereby continuing to actually hold your license you must get a certain number of hours in a certain amount of time. So, yeah, this is the formalization of it, Tom. Yeah, very similar to CPAs, I guess, in a lot of professions, medicine and you name it. And how did you develop the course requirements, what it is that CBP needs to know that people themselves know to be good brokers? Great question. So, again, a lot of what we do in this space and in this part of CBP's mission set, we do very much in conjunction with our private sector stakeholders. So in actually constructing the rule, we we do a notice of proposed rulemaking. So we put that out and, and there were many comments about it, how we want to do it, how many hours are required, what type of training it would be, what the accreditation regime would be like this course is good or this one would not qualify. So it was a very collaborative process, and I think we were really pleased with this final rule. And I think that our broker stakeholders are actually all very happy with it as well. And the coursework itself was developed by CBP, or are there organizations that already teach brokers what they need to know? They developed it. Actually, there's both on the private sector side and in international trade. There's a lot of organizations that give training. And let's face it, especially you know since the pandemic and even before, much of the training can be done online. So any reluctance when we were talking about this requirement, say, say 10 or 15 years ago, and folks like, oh, do I have to travel to get training and put in a lot of expense? We feel most, if not all of this training can be accomplished free of charge and a lot of it online. Yet we still love the in-person stuff. We love to see them do in-person conferences and and face-to-face training. We feel that that is really effective as well. But CBP will not be delivering the training. You just make sure that it conforms to what it is the government feels people need to know and private organizations. Is there an association of brokers or do they have some kind of a professional trade group? There are. But let me just reiterate, CBP actually will be providing some Got of it. that training, not necessarily all of it, but we do quite a lot of, of training both on online. We do webinars. We do in-person trainings. But yeah, so we, we do offer that at the ports of entry, even here at headquarters. So yeah, we'll contribute. They have a lot of private side training as well. So it's a combination, I think. The one thing I will state is the CBP training, the government training generally will always be free. There are associations, Tom, for brokers. There's a national association, what we call the NCBFAA, the National Customs Brokers and Freight Forwarders Association. And then almost every port area has their own local association, whether it be New York, New Jersey, L.A., Long Beach, or Northern California, or 
in Boston and other ports, they have their own groups that locally meet. Right. I imagine the commodities that come into different areas might be particular to that area. For example, maybe all the cars come in from the West Coast, from Japan or something, whereas, I don't know, sugar, rice, and rum comes in on the East Coast. Absolutely. Like, you'd never know it, but Philadelphia is a massive port for fresh produce. Coming up from Central and South America, it just over time, it's become logistically and connections to, to Route 95. Philly is a huge port for that. So there's brokers in Philly that specialize in all the intricacies of fresh produce. When I was our port director out in San Francisco, I had a relationship with a, a broker in Reno, Nevada. His only niche was firearms. The guy knew everything about importing firearms, working with ATF, what forms you needed. He had a bunch of clients and that was his niche. Fascinating stuff. And when does this training requirement become standard or when is it officialized, let's say? It will begin in calendar year 24. So in a few months time, part of our regulation of brokers is done what we call on a triennial basis, a three-year basis. So what we require them to get 36 hours every three years. So the next triennial period begins in 24 and hopefully we'll get it stood up in January. If we don't, we'll prorate it and they'll have to get less. But generally, it's going to be 36 hours every three years. And frankly, many of them get way, way more than that anyway. It's not going to be a heavy lift. John Leonard is Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Trade at Customs and Border Protection. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks so much for the opportunity, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union 
uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay, Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know and I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. 
I begin to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me. Uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career. You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine.
And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.